If you have your scriptures, I'd ask you to turn today to John chapter 7, where we're going to be spending our time. Just listening to that last song, you know, it's a reminder to me of how palpable it was, creation awaiting the arrival of God's Son. And now as my mind is whirling with these thoughts of as a redeemed people, how palpable it is that we await the return of God's Son, uh, a second advent that will be nothing like the first. He will come with power and authority. He will not come in humility and poverty. He will come not to save, but to judge the world um, with every ounce of authority that has been given rightly to Him by our Heavenly Father. And in the meantime, we live between two advents, and our job is crystal clear. As Paul said in Philippians, that we are to shine as lights in a crooked and twisted generation. We are to be a people of Um, as much the first advent as we are to be people of the second advent. Uh, He is a God of love and redemption, and He is a God of authority and truth. And we straddle those two in a very weird culture that we live in today, which kind of brings us to John chapter 7. Because in John chapter 6, there was a... uh, a whole litmus or series of dynamic activities that took place. You know, Jesus fed thousands with uh, two fish and five loaves of bread. He, um, He would then go on to teach after that. He would teach multitudes of people about the importance of not just feeding on bread, but feeding on Him as the bread of life, this idea that to be a follower of of Christ, to be a follower of God, means that you must eat His flesh and drink His blood. What an incredibly difficult concept that was for those who were not spiritually sensitive to that truth. It was a hard teaching that caused, in chapter 6, it caused a lot of people who thought they were followers of Christ to turn and go the other way. It was, there were probably so many people leaving at that point in time based upon that teaching that it caused our Lord to turn to His 12 disciples and say, hey, what about you guys? Don't you want to leave too? Because the teaching is hard. The teaching doesn't fit with what culture wants to hear. The teaching doesn't fit with what other religions or what your religious leaders think needs to be taught. Don't you guys want to go away too? And I love Peter's response in In John 6, it said, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There comes a point in time in each one of our lives where you sort of are forced to recognize the world that you live in and how different it is from what Christ has called you to. There's no fence riding in Christianity. We talk about that a lot in this church. To be a disciple of Christ means that there is a point in time in your life where you say, Lord, I would have it no other way. I can't go anywhere else. For me, it's to say, I woe unto me if I don't preach the gospel of Christ. Because it's what God expects. So we come to chapter 7, and about six months has passed. We know that um, right before he fed the thousands uh, was leading up to Passover. And now uh, he feeds 5,000 just before the Passover, roughly April. And now we come upon in chapter 7 the Feast of the Tabernacles, the Feast of the Booths, the, the, the ingathering. It was one of the three major Jewish feasts which would have gone down in October. So roughly six months has gone by, and we're now approximately one half year from the cross. The intensity begins to ramp up, and as the intensity upon Christ and His followers begins to ramp up, so does the love and the teaching of truth that comes out of Christ to those who would listen. 
the Feast of Tabernacles was significant as a Jewish feast. It was a huge celebration. Jerusalem would have been packed full of people for this particular festival. It was a remembrance of their forefathers, the Israelites, as they they wandered in the desert, and the only thing they had were uh, temporary shelters to live under, and they had the presence of the Lord to guide them in their wanderings as they were delivered out of Egypt. It's a significant reminder to the Jewish people that God is with us. God is with us. Much like the advent of Christmas. God is with us. And it was a celebration of God's harvest provision. So to enter into this scene in Jerusalem, in Judea, would be a loud and very intense time. I mean, it just as if Jerusalem wasn't busy enough, the hustle and bustle would have been exponential at this point in time for the Feast of the Tabernacles. Still the same today. I was telling Mickey uh, this week, you know uh, the, they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles now in Israel. They go camping. That's what they do. They take a holiday, they take the day off, and people go camping. Um, and some things are still the same today as well. Christ's truth and Christ's love stand out in stark contrast to the culture in which it has landed. It stands in stark contrast to the culture and the noise that surrounds us. So here's what I want to talk about, because what we're going to see, I want to, I want to break down John 7 just a little bit today into some chunks, because what happens is Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he does begin to teach during the Feast of Tabernacles, but there's a lot of back and forth going on. There's, there's arguments against him, and there's Jesus' response, and then there's arguments against him, and Jesus' response. Much like today in our culture today, there's a lot of arguments against Christ and there is the truth of God that stands in contrast to those arguments against God and who He is. And where we find ourselves as believers is being able to give appropriate responses and knowing how it is that we're supposed to be able to stand in the midst of the culture and the arguments that still today kick against who Jesus Christ is and what His truth is all about. So we're going to talk about As Jesus responds to his critics, what we're going to answer today is this idea of remaining faithful to Christ despite the outside noise. There's a lot of outside noise going on that would push us away from Christ. We have to choose this day how and whom we will serve. So let's start this off together in John chapter 7. Let's read it beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret. If he seeks to be known openly, um, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this this feast, for my time is not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But his brothers had gone up to the feast, Then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said he is a good man. Others said, No, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. All right, we'll take a time out there. Jesus waited a few days. His brother said to him, You know, go up to the feast. Show yourself. He waits a few days. And then he shows up to teach. His brothers wanted him to go right away uh, for maximum impact. His brothers wanted him... Now, mind you, we're talking about Jesus' four half-brothers. These would have been his younger brothers that would have been born, contrary to what the Catholics believe. These are four younger brothers that would have been born to Mary who did not remain a virgin. uh, And they would be the four children that would have been to her husband, Joseph. 
Joseph has probably passed away by this point. Um, and the brothers are unbelievers. They are pressuring Jesus at this point in a very cynical and uh, antagonistic way. They're saying, go up to Jerusalem and prove yourself. If you are who you are, just go up there. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. You can show yourself. Let's just get this show on the road if you are who you say you are. And Jesus' response is quite telling. It's not my time. I'm not going to do it, no matter what you say. So the first argument that Jesus comes across here is this idea, there, his brothers are saying to him, you're unproven. You're unproven. There's, there's not cr- enough credibility about there. You have to prove yourself to the world in the right way, in man's way, in order to gain credibility. There's a difference. Jesus Christ would prove himself. We all agree on that in the room. But what his brothers wanted him to do was to prove himself in their way, in man's way. And Jesus said, no, no, not my time. I'm not going to do it. Sometimes these, these chuckleheads, these four brothers at this point in time, who, by the way, would go on to be believers, would go on to write significant texts in the New Testament and be leaders in the church, the Holy Spirit would touch their hearts. But at this point in time, these chuckleheads are like many of the people who are closest to us. They're unbelievers, and yet they try and give us arguments of doubt. They even sometimes claim people who are closest to us but don't have the heart of God, they claim to speak for God, and they try and insist upon the way we should live our lives for Christ. They try and put Jesus in a box and say, if Jesus really is who he says he is, then he's going to do this. And you hear these kind of things, you know, if God really is God, then he should heal that person of cancer. If God really is who he says he is, then he should provide this for this particular person. Like, it's God's responsibility to over and over and over again prove himself in some way that we demand of him. If that's your idea of God, I don't want a God like that. I don't want a God who answers to my dictates. That's not God. I want a sovereign God who always knows what's right, always understands the timing of things, and expects that accordingly of me. See, people who are closest to us, sometimes what they even do is, in a sense of mockery, kind of like Jesus' half-brothers, They push and they push and they push in divisive ways as doubters trying to make their point. And what's interesting here is Jesus didn't need to be educated about his brother's attitude, nor did he ever live with a sense of needing to prove something to them. Even if they were his brothers, they were the closest flesh and blood. He didn't... He didn't feel like he had to answer to them or prove anything to them. He didn't have to prove anything for them. This is true when you even look at Mark chapter 3. You may remember this story. Jesus is inside doing some teaching and miraculous works, and it says in verse 31 of Mark 3, And his mother and brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him, and they called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered to them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Would you give me a liberty just to make a side point here about the body of Christ? I believe, scripturally speaking, that it is God's expectation that the family of God be as important, if not more important to you, than even your flesh and blood family. I know that's shocking and does not fit in with the narrative of our culture today. But to invest in and be loved on by spiritually discerning people who share the same Spirit of God and have been redeemed by the same blood of Christ means more to me than even anything that my own flesh and blood family could do for me. Especially if you're living in, if you're here and you're living in a family situation where the majority of your family is lost, they're without redemption in Christ, they have not been born again, they do not have the Spirit of God inside of them, 
directing them, dictating to them the direction in which they should go. They cannot offer appropriate counsel to you. They cannot help you prioritize Christ in your life. The most important family to you should be these people here. Because they know the will of God. They're interested in the the kingdom of God and moving the passions of God forward. Those who are flesh and blood to us, but do not have the Spirit of God living within them, can't do that for you. They can't hold you accountable. They can't help you discern the will of God. Jesus is simply saying, he's sitting here and saying, yeah, yeah, I know my flesh and blood is out there, but really my family is here. I love that. There's huge permission in that, by the way. If the Lord himself would say, my flesh and blood is secondary compared to the priority of that which is the family of God. There's permission for you in that. So, his brothers are like, go up to Jerusalem, prove yourself, show yourself the way we expect you to prove yourself. And Jesus' response is telling. His response to them is this, obedience to God's timing is more important. You want me to prove myself. I'm saying to you that God's timing is most important. He says, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it and that its works are evil. You go up to the feast, I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And then it says, he went to Galilee. Or he remained in Galilee. For whatever reason, Jesus understood their motives and he responds accordingly. And this is a good reminder about our families. Sometimes the unbelieving flesh and blood that we have can be a distraction to the will of God in your life. And you have to be prepared as a follower of Christ to delineate those two things. And we worry about timing all the time. You know, uh, Jesus wasn't so worried about what people expected of him. He was always concerned about the timing of God in his life. Remember the death of Lazarus? Word comes to Jesus and his disciples as he's far off. It comes to him and he says, you know, hey, your good friend Lazarus is about to die. It's not looking good, Jesus. Now, how many of us, if we found out that our best friend was, you know, a car ride away and they were at their end of their life, of course we would jump in the vehicle and we would be there in a heartbeat. Jesus said, it's all good. So what does he do? He waits one, two, three four days before he goes down to Bethany. And when he gets there, what are the responses of Mary and Martha and most of the people that are there? They're saying, man, Lazarus, his sister says, if you had just been here, if you had just been here, you know, if you had just, if you had just met the expectations of my timing. And he calms her down and he says, uh, do you believe well, I believe, he says, do you believe that your brother will rise again? And he says, I believe that he'll rise again at the resurrection. And his words just totally blow her mind and sets a theology in place that still resonates with us today and it's where we find every ounce of hope that we, that we have. Do you remember what he said to her? Mary, I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the res- You're waiting for a resurrection and I'm telling you that I am the resurrection. Timing is insignificant to one who holds the keys of life and death and time itself. He doesn't need to meet our expectations of timing. Knowing in our lives today, here's the truth, knowing and trusting in God's timing is more important than the expectations of other people, the demands of what other people want of you. Sometimes people are going to say, no, you have to make a decision now. No, you have to move on this now. No, you can't wait. And sometimes as a Christian, you need to, you need to address that and say, I don't think it's the Lord's timing though. I don't think it's the Lord's timing. I'm going to pray about this. I'm going to allow God to reveal His timing in this. Because you know what disobedience is? Operating outside of God's timing is disobedience to the Lord. Christ understood here that a big public display at the wrong time would not be fitting with God's timing. Timing of what? Timing for Him to die. I mean, 
if, if we can't make this any more interesting than it already is, he's saying to his brothers, I can't go and prove myself the way you want me to because I have to die. That's the way I'm going to prove myself. Sometimes we think trusting in God's timing is going to always make us look better in the eyes of other people. Do you know what? When Christ died on the cross, do you know what most of his disciples were thinking? Now what? They ran out of fear. Yet God would prove himself. But I love the just a little caveat here to close this. Yet despite the withdrawal, it says his brothers went up to Jerusalem and Jesus did what? He remained in Galilee. Why is that so important? Just because it wasn't his timing to go to Jerusalem didn't mean it was his timing to step away from ministry. Galilee was Jesus' hotbed of ministry. You can go to Galilee today and you can see within walking distance, within a day's walk, he could have, he could have gone from Tiberias all the way over to uh, the Gadarenes and he could have ministered in Capernaum and Tiberias uh, in uh, Migdal. He could have been in all these places and, and done all this ministry, and that's exactly what he did. He allowed his brothers to go to the show, which was in Jerusalem, and Jesus continued to do what God had called him to do, which was teach and preach truth in Galilee. All right, let's pick up our story here in John 7, verse 14. About the middle of the feast... Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. All right, so what's going on here? They come with the second argument, which is this. Jesus, in the middle, goes up, he enters into the temple complex, and he begins to teach, just you know, teaching on the open. And uh, the, the people are listening, but the complaint, the argument is this. He's not trained. How he, can he be saying these things? He's not studied. He's not trained. They can't get past in their minds the fact that this guy never sat with the master, never sat with a leader, a teacher, a disciple-maker, a discipler. That was the thing back in the day. Everybody had a mentor. If you were to be a teacher in the law, you received a mentor, you sat underneath that teacher, you studied underneath him, even as a young boy, it would begin with these crazy expectations. You would need to memorize the Torah. You would memorize word for word the first five books of the Bible so that you could quote them off the top of your head. So Jesus goes up to Jerusalem He's centered on teaching in the temple, and the people just couldn't comprehend this. This guy doesn't have this pedigree. This guy isn't one of us in the trained way that we should be trained. And Jesus' response is telling. They're saying, you're too untrained. He's not trained. He doesn't have the proper pedigree for this message. Jesus, his response is, Obedience to God's message is more important. So they're saying you're not the right type person. Jesus is saying the person doesn't matter. Obedience to the message matters. You see, folks, it's always about the message. It's not about the messenger. God takes talking donkeys. God takes untrained, unskilled men and women. God takes uh, broken people with sinful pasts. God takes people who of all different stripes, ethnicities, backgrounds, cultural um, backgrounds, and he uses those people to bring attention to the message, never to bring attention to themselves. 
It's not about me standing up here and telling you uh, uh, where I went to school and what I studied and what languages I speak and, and how many hours I've accumulated in a classroom. And It's not about any of that. It's about the message that you put out there, which is the message of the Gospel of Christ, the truth of God's law and the redemption that we have through Christ from the law. The messenger doesn't need a degree. The messenger doesn't need a pedigree. The messenger doesn't need a certain level of training. All those things can be helpful. But if God's in it, the most important thing is to be obedient to communicate the message. There are many people, even among us this morning, we feel too unqualified to proclaim God's truth to another person. And that's really sad and unfortunate because uh, if God has given you new life in Christ, He has given you a message to communicate. And it's about Christ and His message. It's not about who you are or who you were or what your concern is over your past. What matters is what has Christ done for you? How has Christ redeemed you? How is the Word of God being played out in your life? How can I tell somebody about that? It's always about the message and not the messenger. And to this, let me just make another side note. I'm going to encourage our church in this. We must stop shirking our responsibility to be disciple makers. We have to get serious about discipleship. The only way we're going to become a disciple-making church is if we are people who find and communicate with other people the truth of God's Word. That may be a lost person, that you practice evangelism, you share your story, you share faith in Christ with that person. It may be somebody who's less mature than you in Christ, and you build a relationship with that person, and you tell them about Christ and how to live for Him. And it may be that somebody helps you or you help somebody else to become a fruit-bearing Christian. We can't shirk the message because we doubt ourselves. I don't want to serve a God like that either. If my God is not big enough to do what He wants to do and what He needs to do through me, that's no God at all. He created you. He fashioned you. He knows your history. He knows your background. He saved you from that. Now He wants to use you. Who are you making a disciple of right now, this day? What is the name of that person in your life that you are pouring into? either in hopes and expectation that that person comes to saving faith in Christ or that person that you are pouring into to see them become more mature in Jesus Christ. There has, I just want to challenge us this morning. I mean, like it's, this is not feel-good Christianity in this church. We have to get serious because the second advent is coming. We live between two advents. The days are drawing short. Nobody has the promise of eternal life. We have to share Christ with people. We have to make disciples. Story goes on in verse 25. So now they're saying to him, yeah, you're unproven. They're saying to him, you are untrained. And now in verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? There's two groups of people in this crowd. There are the people that are looking at Jesus and they're saying, yeah, 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 but we know you, Mary's son. We know you, Carpenter's kid from Nazareth. You can't be the Messiah because we know you. You aren't significant enough because we know your history and your pedigree. 
It disqualifies you. But then there was a group of people that they said, yeah, I mean, maybe he is who he says he is, but I mean, maybe we know where he's from, but have you seen everything that he's done? I mean, if we're waiting for a Messiah to do more than this, I don't think that guy's ever going to come. There were some people that were starting to get it. But here's the argument against Christ. They were saying, you're known, Jesus, to be a nobody. Saying, we know you, and we know you're a nobody. Therefore, you can't be who you say you are. And ultimately, the crowds in Jerusalem began to really wrestle with who Jesus is. And sadly, the majority of them were concluding this. They were saying, since they knew him, since he was the carpenter's son from Nazareth, he couldn't be the Messiah. Now, people may look and say, in your life, they may say, yeah, yeah, we know you. We know you. you we know what you've done in your past. We know the horrible decisions you've made. You're no Christian. You're no standout person. Isn't that what the culture loves to do? I mean, if they can... There's a lot of different tactics that are um, employed today to bring Christ down and to bring the church down. But one of the main tactics is to make you, as a Christian, feel disqualified because of who you were and forget about who Christ has made it's not about pedigree with us. It's about redemption. It's not about history with us. It's about our hope in a good future. It's not about what we've done at all. It's about what Christ has done for us. It made no difference that Jesus came from Nazareth, a town of no prominence. It made no difference that He was born to a poverty-stricken man and woman who worked a day's labor job as a carpenter. It made no difference. And here's why. Because of Jesus' response. Jesus tells them obedience to God's authority. Obedience to God's authority is more important. Ultimately, Jesus boils it down to a spiritual truth. They would not know Him because they do not know the One who sent Him. People will, in this world today, nothing's changed. People in 2016, this Christmas, will not recognize Christ because they don't know the Father. And they can't know the Father apart from Jesus Christ. And you say, well, man, that's a self-defeating sort of thing, isn't it? It is until the Holy Spirit steps in and addresses a person's heart. That's why when we say no man can come to the Father unless the Lord would draw him, Scripture teaches that, what it's saying is this it's impossible for a human being in their depraved condition, their depraved heart, to recognize Christ for who He really is unless God's Spirit grabs a hold of that person's heart and speaks truth. On one hand, they do know Him and where He came from in the flesh, they know this, but they have no idea of Christ's spiritual mandate. It wasn't Jesus' authority being fulfilled. It wasn't Jesus bringing glory to Himself. It was Jesus ultimately saying, it's not about me, it's, it's about Him. I'm pointing to the Heavenly Father. He's the one who authorizes me. He's the one that gives the mandate for ministry. You could sit in this room this morning and think that I am spewing out absolute nonsense. You're not going to get a word that's coming out of my mouth. It's going to sound like garbledygook unless the Spirit of God speaks to your heart this morning. And that's what I pray every Sunday morning before we come to this place and before I speak. It was Jesus here simply operating out of God's truth. He said, He who sent Him is true. Think about how in Christ we see the culmination of God's truth. 
not the importance of the messenger's background. Can you hear that for yourself? In your life, it's about the culmination of God's truth, not the background of the messenger. It's not about your past. It's not about what you do and don't know. It's not about your credibility. It's about He who sent you. It's about Him working in you. What did Jesus tell His disciples right before He ascended into heaven? He says, My power will come upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. We are nothing unless God's power comes upon us. The Holy Spirit did that. The Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. And just look at Peter. Just look at Peter. Days, months earlier, he was running for his life and denying the authority of Jesus Christ, denying the messianic position of Jesus Christ. And in one fell swoop, in one day, He's hiding in an upper room with the other disciples. And the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. The power of God comes upon this man. And within hours, he's standing on the steps of the temple. He's preaching a message of conviction of sin and the need for repentance and the need to turn from your sin and turn to Christ for salvation. And what happens? Thousands are added to the family of God that day. Because God's power came upon the messenger. Why? Because it's not about the messenger. It's about the authority of Him who sends the messenger. I mean, this is just typical keeping with God in the Scriptures. It's not the importance of the messenger's background. Ask Joseph. Ask Moses. Ask David. Ask all those Galilean fishermen. What about your pedigree and upbringing enables you to be the right spokesman for God. And they would all have to say nothing except that God entered my life and empowered me to do the miraculous as His messenger. It's not a a mental ascent. It's believing in Him as God's Son. John 3, 16-18 and Nicodemus comes at night and he's like, you know, I want to believe, but this is what's being said. And, and Jesus' response to Nicodemus was, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he who has not believed in the name of um the name of the only Son of God. Here's the God commissions and sends His Son into the world and that man must believe upon that Son in order to be saved. That's it. That's the message. Why do you speak with authority? Why did Christ speak with authority? Because God commissioned and enables and empowers the messenger. And the message is this, believe in the name of God's Son for salvation. It's believing in Him as God's Son. It's believing He is sent as God's High Priest, as we read in Hebrews 5. God not only sent Him as His Son in to communicate love to the world, but He sent Him in as a High Priest. Verse 5 That is why Christ did not honor Himself by assuming He could become high priest. No, He was chosen by God who said to Him, You are My Son, today I have become Your Father. And in another passage, God said to Him, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. While Jesus was here on earth, He offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the One who could rescue Him from death. And God heard His prayers because of His deep reverence for God. Even though Jesus was God's Son, He learned obedience from the things He suffered. In this way, God qualified Him as a perfect high priest. And He became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey Him. And God designated Him to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. God not only sent His Son into the world to communicate love, 
But God sent His Son into the world to suffer in order that He might be an appropriate high priest. What I want you to see from Scripture is this. God sent, God sent, God sent, God commissioned, God enabled. This is God the Father using His Son to suffer and die in order to get the message across. In order for us to receive salvation. Christ humbled Himself to the Father's authority in order to become our salvation, not just teach it. Which brings us to this last section of John 7, verses 32 to 35, or 36. Enter the Pharisees. All this mumbling at this time has been kind of among those Jews who were there for the Feast of of Tabernacles. The Pharisees have been listening off in the corner, you know. They sort of have been paying close attention to what's going on. They, They already have disdain for this man, and things turn an ugly corner here. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer and then I am going to Him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Now obviously today what we know Jesus was talking about was His death. The Pharisees wanted to arrest Him. Jesus was buying time until his own death. So the fourth argument is this. The Pharisees come along and their argument is this. You, being Jesus, must be silenced no matter what. This Jesus and his message must be silenced no matter what. If we have to arrest him, we'll do that. Eventually what we know is if we have to kill him, we'll do it. In the midst of his teaching, the Pharisees hear these mutterings, especially verse 31, that some were believing in him and they're troubled. And they want to arrest him. And here's the truth for us today. Nothing's changed. The truth of God, the truth of Jesus Christ, because he is the only one true God, there is no salvation in the world for any other religion, any other individual apart from Jesus Christ. You cannot be saved unless you are saved in the name of Jesus Christ by his substitution on the cross where he took the wrath of God upon himself. You cannot be saved apart from Jesus. And the world is still saying today, you closed-minded bigots, you stereotypical fundamentalists, you who think that this ancient book still matters, are you not educated and civilized enough yet to forego it? Be quiet, and if you don't be quiet, we will silence you. That's what they're saying. The truth of God still elicits a hostile response from people today. And if you don't think it's true, just ask, Christians who choose not to bake a cake for a gay wedding. If you don't think it's true, just ask Chip and Joanna Gaines. Do you know who these people are? I don't talk about like a lot of the social stuff publicly, but Chip and Joanna Gaines have this show called Fixer Upper. Right? Just being honest, I've never watched it, but they have a show called Fixer Upper on home and garden television, which, just to be honest, I don't really watch. But some of you probably do. Chip and Joanna Gaines have a huge following. I mean, they're very good at what they do. They they come in, they fix up houses, they flip them. And the whole way through, it has started to become clear to the world that there's something different about this husband and wife and their family. Well, then stories began to come out about their Christian faith. And they began to talk openly about their their faith in Jesus Christ. And, um, and if you... Um, if you want, you can go to the imsecond.com website and they have a, a wonderful film on there where Chip and Joanna talk about how they met and how God has worked in their life. And So the more open and public Chip and Joanna, who were at one point in time just culturally significant and beloved figures, now start to talk about their faith in Christ, 
This past week, a lot of social websites and media sites decided that now's the time to tear down Chip and Joanna Gaines. Once they started talking about their faith in Christ and what Christ teaches, they went to their church and they began to listen to some of the messages that their pastor was preaching. And at the church that they go to, they found out that their pastor preaches on traditional marriage. That marriage is for one man and one woman and not for same-sex marriage, that homosexuality is a sin. This is what their pastor preaches because this is what the Bible teaches. And now, publicly, hit pieces have been written asking for Chip and Joanna Gaines, followers of Christ, to recant what their pastor teaches in their church. And this is, this is what the culture does. They want to silence the message of Christ no matter what. Trevin Wax, in his article on the Gospel Coalition website this week, he said this, the, the culture views Chip and Joanna Gaines as cultural heretics. Not biblical heretics, cultural heretics. They have denied the teachings of culture to stand for this crazy thing called the Bible. And they must recant. And if they won't recant, they must be silenced. The show, HGTV, must do away with them. They have to be silenced no matter what. Because now the culture thinks that they determine who has a voice and who can have religious conviction and who can't. The culture determines whether the message of the Bible matters or not. I'm just here to say, again, let me give you a bit of freedom here this morning as we gather together as a body of like-minded people. The only thing that matters is what the Bible teaches. And whatever the culture teaches is insignificant in the eyes of God. The only thing that matters is what the Scriptures teach. Jesus, in this instance, was a threat to the religious and cultural power and position that many had been enjoying. And I love Jesus' response. And it should be our response. He says this. Jesus' response, obedience to God's plan is more important. You want to silence me no matter what? I'm just telling you. That argument is irrelevant to me because I must be obedient to the plan of God no matter what. He says, where I'm going, you can't come. You're going to look for me and I'm going to be gone. What's he really saying to them? I'm going to die for what I believe in so that you might live. The Gospel is replete with Christ's emphasis upon His departure. This wasn't a secret. Multiple times throughout the Gospels, Jesus told his followers that he would be leaving. He'd be departing. In John 13.33, in John 14.28, in John 16.5, in John 17.11, just in this one Gospel alone, Jesus said, I am departing to go with the Father. Consider his prayer time in the Garden of Gethsemane as he, as he wrestled, as he sweat drops of blood. He was in so much pain and anguish over the plan that God had put in his place. He even had no problem crying out to God and saying, if it's not your will, let this cup pass from me. I don't want this wrath and pain and separation from you to come upon me. But remember what he said after that. Yet not my will, but your will be done. Gosh, what a difference the church of Jesus Christ could make in the world today if we just had more people that lived that out. Not my will, but your will be done. And here's the deal. Because of Christ's obedience, let's take heart in this. Listen to this closely. Because of Christ's obedience, there is no argument or opposition then, now, or ever, that can get rid of Him. You hear me? Take comfort in this. Because Christ was obedient 2,000 years ago, there is no cultural, religious, or political argument or disagreement that can get rid of Him. 
Jesus Christ will never be silenced. He will never go away and He will never be defeated. You may think that the dark clouds of culture are pouring over us and that hope is going away. I'm just telling you the exact opposite is true. Christ has never been more in charge than He is today. The truth of Christ has never been more relevant than it is today. And you know what? Here's the message for us. The love of Christ has never been more needed than it is today. We must love in truth with grace. The only way this world is going to change is A, if Christ comes back, that's a win. Or B, if there's an awakening where people fall on their faces before the living God and surrender their lives to Him. I'd like to see that happen first. Let's pray that way. Let's live that way. Don't shy away from the message. Let's be obedient to it and trust in God for the results. Because in Matthew 10, verses 16 to 22, the Lord gave us fair warning. He told His disciples and He told us this. It won't be on the screen. This is what He said. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of their men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Endures. The one who abides the one who remains in Christ to the end will be saved. We should not fear the pressure, the persecution. We should not fear the push, the outside noise, that which it is that tries to silence us. And this is not a a battle cry for us. I'm not telling you to go out there and, and make enemies with the world and beat people across the head with the Bible. I'm just saying this, remain faithful to this. Love people the way Jesus Christ loved people. Communicate the truth of God's love. And then just let's watch what God can do. Let's be obedient disciples this morning and not fear the noise of those who live around us. Let's pray together.